Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest today is Dr. David Bebbington. He is here at Beeson to present the William E. Conger Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching. It's not his first visit to Beeson. He's a friend of longstanding, one of the most influential historians working anywhere in the world today, and we're delighted to welcome you back to Beeson, David. Thank you very much. Now, you're from England, from, from Great Britain. Tell us a little bit about your own background, family, and orientation as a young man. I was born and brought up in Nottingham in the English Midlands. I went to school there, to an excellent school, Nottingham High School, which probably provided one of the best educations in the United Kingdom at the time. And I went on from there to university at Cambridge. I was brought up in first the Brethren denomination, the so-called Plymouth Brethren. And my parents had been in that for some years. Indeed, my grandfather on one side, my great-grandfather on the other side had been in that movement. But my parents moved to a Baptist church in 1959 and I joined them. I was converted the following year, uh, but I was not baptised until I was 18, just before I went to university, a long gap. But I benefited enormously from the influence of the church, but also paradoxically from the influence of school religion. Uh, My school had an Anglican ethos, Mm. a sort of general public school in the English sense, that is, an independent school Mm. atmosphere, which was diffusely Anglican, and trying to work out what was right about the Baptist stance and what was right about the Anglican stance and trying to synthesise was very, very good for me, I realised in retrospect. Now, you are almost unique, perhaps you are unique, in being the only person I know whose wife has written a book about him. Now, your wife is Eileen, and she has written A Patterned Life, Faith, History, and David Bevington. Now, I want you to talk about that book and about your wife insofar as you can. Here's your chance to get back at her now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is very odd. Uh, This is a book by my wife. I am not responsible. (laughs) She wrote it over some three years and has tried to produce a biography of me, which is very rare. I don't think wives write about husbands until they're safely dead. (laughs) And in this case, it's very much not till I'm safely dead, I think. My wife and I met at university. She was at Girton College, Cambridge. I was at Jesus College, Cambridge. Uh, She was a classicist, specialist in Greek philosophy, latterly. And we got to know each other through the Baptist Society at the university, the Robert Mm. Hall Society, named after a very distinguished Baptist preacher in Cambridge at the start of the 19th century. She became president of the society in the year ahead of me because she was a year ahead of me. I wanted to be president in the next year, but the society did not elect me. So the second best thing to being president was marrying the (laughs) ex-president. I therefore proposed to her and we got married in 1971. So we have been married for many years now. Um, I could not wish for a more 
remarkable, fascinating, interesting interlocutor, mm. as well as all a wife should be. She actually wrote a little book on her own school days, a sort of autobiography some years ago, which has been used by the school, Northampton High School. And she's written a couple of books on attachment issues, psychological problems such as those that afflicted our daughter, Anne, uh, who uh, was adopted and has these issues which many people who are adopted have had. And with Anne's blessing, the, these booklets have been published and much used by mm. educational social workers. That's wonderful. Mm. Uh, comment on the word patterned in the title of this mm. book by Eileen, a patterned life. What does that mean? Well, that means that no doubt she is deeply troubled by when I insist every day on kicking any stones that are misplaced on our front drive back into place. But it also relates to the title of a book that I published in 1979 called Patterns in History, which is a Christian perspective on the history of historical thought, which may sound a bit peculiar, but it's actually... Uh, a sort of handbook for historians of how history has been conceived by different points of view over the centuries, including the Christian perspective, yes. alongside the perspective of the Enlightenment, the perspective of the ancient world, the perspective of Romanticism, and so on. And he tries to do a comparative study, published by InterVarsity Press, that was many years ago, and which is actually under revision at the moment. Mm. But the, the notion is that patterns were discerned in the historical process mm. by various people in the past, and those discerners of patterns themselves fell into patterns. Mm. So I quite like looking for patterns, and yeah. that's why Eileen chose that as the title. I want to talk a little more about some of your own historical writings, but tell us what piqued your interest in history as a young student. As a boy, my parents took me to various historic buildings, castles, cathedrals, stately homes, and I very much enjoyed it. I liked poking around back streets of the city of Nottingham and looking at interesting buildings there too. And then a very wise teacher at my primary school realised that I was interested in history and it could be developed. So he lent me a copy of J.H. Breasted's History of the Ancient World, a standard American text, mm. intriguingly. And at the age of nine, he encouraged me to do as a school project a study of the ancient world based on Breasted and any other sources I could find. I therefore wrote a book which I still possess, which is called A History of the Ancient World with which is incorporated classical mythology in four volumes, and it runs to 120 pages. <laughs> that was when I was nine, and really, in a sense, that set my course. How could I do anything but history long term? I had very good history teaching at my secondary school. And just before I went up to Cambridge, I was able to do research on the history of the church where I was brought up. Mm. Its centenary was approaching, so it was thought that a history... This was, was in Nottingham? In Nottingham. Mm. Queensbury Street Baptist Church, Old Baseford, Nottingham. It was only a century old, um, very short term in, in by English standards. Uh, founded in 1877, so with the centenary coming up in 1977, the church encouraged me to do research on its past from the minute books, but also from oral interviews. And I very much enjoyed that, pieced together the history of the church, and it was published in the centenary year. But I realised in that process that there was no good book on the political attitudes 
of Baptists and other evangelical nonconformists, the broader group to which they belonged, at the end of the 19th and start of the 20th centuries. So I thought, if it were possible, after having done a history degree, it would be nice to do a PhD on that subject. It did turn out to be possible, and that turned into my first book, The Nonconformist Conscience. The Nonconformist Conscience. I want you to say a word about that book and also another book, which came out in 1989, I believe, which you traced the history of evangelicalism in modern Britain from the 1730s to the 1980s. I remember reading that book when I was in Cambridge studying and thinking, wow, what a fresh, engaging approach to this subject. I thought I knew something about. You taught me a lot. But the nonconformist conscience and then evangelicalism in modern Britain. The nonconformist conscience covers the role of the nonconformists, otherwise called the free churches, in British politics from 1970 to the First World War, when they were extremely influential. There were strong supporters of the Liberal Party under that eminent Christian statesman, William Ewart Gladstone, mm. on whom I have subsequently yes. written. And it's really a study in the interaction of religion and politics. I think actually it shows something about what Christians should avoid in politics as well as what Christians should do. They had some very noble causes, but sometimes they allowed themselves to be carried away and became too denunciatory. And I mm. think that did them a lot of harm in that period. Mm. Um, so, a study in religion and politics, a theme which still very much interests me. The second book you mentioned, Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, in a sense was an offshoot from the earlier book, because in The Nonconformist Conscience I had to work out what moulded the political attitudes of evangelical nonconformists. I realised that it was overwhelmingly their evangelical theology. So I wanted to look at the evangelical movement much more broadly. Originally, I wanted to look at it only from 1800, but I realised that to understand it properly, you have to see the evangelical revival in Britain in the 18th century as the roots of what happened in the 19th and 20th centuries. So the developments associated with Wesley and Whitfield had to come in. So it covers the whole trajectory of the evangelical movement from the 1730s right up to the date when the book was written in the 1980s. And it tries to see the relationship between religion, not in politics this time so much, although it's mentioned on passant, but rather more religion and culture. Mm. By culture in this context, I don't mean high culture. I don't mean specifically popular culture. I mean culture in the anthropological sense, the general web of attitudes and forms of behaviour which were practised at the time. And I became strongly convinced, on the basis of the evidence, that in the 18th and early 19th centuries, evangelicals were very strongly influenced by the Enlightenment, which a lot of books had said they weren't because the Enlightenment was thought to be wholly anti-Christian. Mm -hmm. I became convinced the Enlightenment and the evangelicalism actually cooperated, worked together. The Enlightenment reinforced the rise of evangelicals. But then various um, aspects of romanticism, the romantic movement that succeeded the Enlightenment in the 19th century also moulded evangelicalism in different ways and gave rise to all sorts of theological and ecclesiastical developments. And then in the very recent past, in the 20th century, I saw what I in the book call modernism, that's a confusing term, one might probably better call it expressivism, mm. uh, had a further cultural impact on evangelicals. And I became convinced, as I still very strongly am convinced, that what one might call the spectacles behind the eyes, 
the way in which one looks at the world because of the normal cultural assumptions around one were deeply influential over evangelical religion. So it had a very important history in relation to the broad themes of Western civilization during the period. So that's the central mm. case. Now, one of the legacies of that book that remains with us today is what we call the Bebbington Quadrilateral, in which you identified four, let's call them centering characteristics, perhaps, uh, of the entire evangelical movement. There's generated a lot of discussion. It still does today. Um, so if I, if I remember my quadrilateral right, they are these. Uh, first of all, um, the Bible. Uh, so it's bibliocentric, bibliocentric. The cross, crucicentric, and then also uh, conversion, so the experiential, the new birth, and then finally activism. Did I get them right? Absolutely, <laughs> and I'm glad you did because one occasion when I was being interviewed for Australian radio, I was asked about the quadrilateral, and I couldn't remember one of those points, <laughs> which was very highly embarrassing. Well, tell us, how did you come up with this? And, you know, this was some 25, 26 years ago. What's been the response since, and how do you evaluate it today? It originated some years before the book was published, when I was asked to give a talk on the nonconformist conscience, actually, uh, by an old friend from Cambridge at his church. And in order to explain the attitudes of the people I was talking about, I had to explain what evangelicalism was. And I thought around and I couldn't think of any very careful characterization that I knew of. So on that occasion I said that it was orthodox Christians who were evangelistic, which served for the purpose. But then I thought about it and that's not very satisfactory, it's not precise, it doesn't define the boundaries, it doesn't illuminate as much as it ought to. So I asked myself, now what characteristics have evangelicals in Britain always shown? There may be enormous variation in the ways in which they express these emphases, but nevertheless, what emphases have always been there? And those are the four that, that struck me as being consistently there. Now, there's enormous variation in the way in which the Bible has been looked at, likewise with the other elements. And activism probably shows the, the chief contrasts in that for a while in the mid, middle years of the 20th century, activism amongst conservative evangelicals was conceived to be evangelism only. And clearly evangelism has always been a major dimension of activism. But sub-conservative evangelicals in the mid-20th century claimed that any social engagement, any social activism was not what Christians should do. Indeed, a diversion from the expression of the gospel. Evangelism alone should be what they should do. Now, that had not been the norm in the 18th or the 19th century, and I think increasingly is not the norm now. But for a while that was so, and that shows that those categories are meant to reflect the historical reality, which is in constant flux. But nevertheless, I think I can say that despite the variations, those four are constant emphases. Mm. I want to use that word. Not that Christians... In, in the evangelical tradition didn't express other orthodox convictions. Of course they did, but these were the chief emphases. I have seen no reason to revise that view since. I have seen reason to revise various lesser points in the evangelicalism in modern Britain book, and as I think you are more than aware, because you kindly wrote a preface to the book, there was a book which discussed the thesis of chapter two of that book, 
um, that was published a few years ago. And I feel that one or two of the points I make need to be modified and said so in the response to that book. But in terms of the four categories of that evangelical quadrilateral, I don't. I can say that with a fair degree of confidence because last year, being the 25th anniversary of the publication of the book, the American Society of Church History in its conference of Washington DC very kindly organised a panel where three people were encouraged to critique it, to stick pins in my back <laughs> over it, and I had to defend myself. And I felt that I managed to persuade myself anyhow that the position was tenable. And likewise, last fall, there was a, a session of the Conference on Faith and History, which did exactly the same. And it may be partly that the people who were on the panel were partly panels, both of them were partly my friends. But um, in the end, although they did ask some probing questions and raise some interesting issues, I was still happily convinced and remain so that those four elements do provide the constant core of what evangelicalism has been. And of course, what's different from the book is that I would now see them as having been the constant core of evangelicalism, not just in Britain, which was the sole subject of the book, mm -hmm. but also in the United States, the Americas more broadly, and throughout the world. And the funny thing is that when I wander around the world, I find that other people seem to think the same. We were on holiday in... Switzerland, uh, no Paris a year ago, and we found a book on Swiss evangelicals and politics. And reading an early chapter, we found that evangelicalism is, and I found a rather familiar definition in terms of four characteristics, and the footnote saying this has been argued by David Bebbington has found general acceptance in the academic community and with evangelicals. So that's what a Swiss author that? said. Yeah. And if if a Swiss author says it that you stumble on like that, you, you tend to begin to, to believe it, <laughs> which is rather nice. Well, one of the things I like about the quadrilateral is that at least three, one could argue perhaps all four, but, but three are distinctively theological categories, cross, Bible, conversion. Uh, and many people, I think, uh, have a more reductionistic view of evangelicalism in that uh, the theology is not taken very seriously in terms of uh, how one thinks about the movement from inside. And I know there are many, many other factors, of course. It isn't strictly a theological movement. Uh, but when you looked and analyzed it, you identified at least those three. And, of course, again, as you say, they're not unique to evangelicalism. I think good Roman Catholics would want to say all, all of these apply to us as well. But they do get, in a sense, to the core of the gospel message that all Christians share. Evangelicals do it in a distinctive way, and I think that was part of your point. Yes. I would want to say that all four categories have an intellectual side, that is, theological, and also a social side, that is, in terms of characteristics relating to behaviour. All four have both dimensions, so that the Bible clearly is an authority theologically, but also can be observed to have been the core of family devotion with a family Bible on the central table for much of the 19th century. Uh, and likewise, I think even activism can be seen to be both, although that's more obviously social, a matter of behaviour. Nevertheless, the imperative to mission mm -hmm. is very much a theological conviction. And it is my strong conviction methodologically 
that historians in general writing about anything, not just religion, but certainly about religion, should consider not just the social, as many historians of a recent generation did, but also the intellectual, which many historians left out in a recent generation. If you're writing about religion, the intellectual is primarily theological, and therefore you have to give theology weight in history. Mm. I am an ordinary general secular historian working in ordinary general secular university and as such I want to do ordinary history which reflects contemporary historical practice um, and if possible reflects developments in historiographical method and I am convinced that one of the most important innovations of our generation is to ensure that the intellectual is not left out of the social, to integrate them, to see how they interrelate. And that's something that I feel strongly about and I hope is embodied even in the book we're mm. talking about. Now, another book you've written we haven't mentioned yet, but I'd like for you to comment briefly on it, is uh, A Baptist History. You wrote a book called Baptist, I think, A Global People, something like that. Is the title from Baylor University Press. It's an excellent overview. We've used it as a textbook here at uh, Beeson Divinity School. And again, I see both of these elements in a sense, the social, the corporate, the communal, along with the intellectual, the theological. They're all kind of woven together. Uh, but you take a global view. Uh, and I think that's increasingly necessary when you think of a world Christian communion such as the Baptists are. So say a little bit about that particular book. You are a Baptist. I don't think of you primarily as a Baptist historian. You're a historian who is a Baptist who wrote about Baptists. Yes, um, I have been a Baptist church member since I was baptized when I was 18. And so I have a certain loyalty in that direction. I've been a member of the committee of the Baptist Historical Society in London for a very long time. And I've organized international conferences, the International Conference on Baptist Studies, which happens every three years in different parts of the world, in order to try to promote the global study of Baptists. The book you mentioned, however, Baptist Through the Centuries, is the reflection of a particular course that I have taught on five occasions at Truett Seminary at Baylor University in Texas, which has kindly helped me to teach. And that is intended as an overview of Baptist history designed for people who are not necessarily historical specialists, but who want to come to terms with the broad themes of Baptist history right from the early 17th century right up to the present day and as the movement spread to other parts of the world taking in the global dimension. So it's very much an overview. I wrote a lot of it during one of my times at Truitt and in a given week I was teaching a topic in the seminar and also writing the chapter on that topic. And on one memorable occasion, I recall pointing out to students that there was a really important matter to, to be grasped on this subject, and I've known that since Monday. <laughs> <laughs> the book is actually forged from teaching, mm. and I do find it exciting when teaching informs research yeah. and vice versa. And that, I think, is partly what universities are about, actually. And it was super that it was possible to write that book and express that relationship yeah. between teaching and research. I highly commend it. It's a very accessible and uh, engaging uh, story of the Baptist movement. Uh, David, can you say a little bit about your lectures here at Beeson uh, this week, uh, evangelical preaching in the 20th century and evangelical preaching in the 21st century? Those two lectures are based almost exclusively on a single source. 
That source is my own notebooks, which as a hobby, I have filled with comments on public worship that I've attended since 1965. I have a continuous series stored in various old shoe boxes <laughs> of my notes in little notebooks, and I've drawn on those for these lectures. So it's very much a personal view. It's what I've experienced of preaching. Uh, I'm going to talk about preaching only in North America because I'm here, thank you very much, in North America, so it seems sensible to select those. The first lecture will be based on 30, le 30 sermons that I heard in ver from various North American pulpits in the 1990s, and the second lecture will be based on a sample of 200 sermons that I've heard on various visits, not least to Baylor University when I've been there for a whole semester. Um, and it tr the lectures will try to draw out what the emphases, what the common themes, what the variations were. My services notebooks have everything about the whole service in them, but I'm focusing for these lectures on the preaching only. So I'm looking at the characteristics of the preachers, their illustrations, their texts, their mannerisms, their errors, <laughs> their um, impact on the congregation, indeed the interaction between preacher and the congregation standing before him or her and I, I find the whole process fascinating and there is very little written about it mm. books on preaching tell you what you ought to do mm. they don't tell you what has been done and i actually think that what has been done is more interesting because it actually reflects reality and actually can be very instructive for somebody who wants to find out how to do it Fascinating. And I uh, would love to hear you do the same thing about preaching in the United Kingdom. That may be a s separate set of lectures, but what would be a contrast that comes to you? You doubtless have heard a lot of preaching in the United Kingdom uh, from what you've heard here in North America. In the United States, there is paradoxically, commonly, more emphasis on the political role of the nation. In a country where there is no established church, there seems to be a hole where it's possible to do that. Um, much more welding together of patriotism with the faith expressed in church. That's one of the differences. Another difference, on one occasion of three successive Sundays that I heard sermons in the United States, they were all about money. Very different approaches, but all were about finance. And I have only heard very few sermons in the United Kingdom on finance, so th there again is another contrast. I suppose, however, in terms of style, the most striking contrast is between a subsector of American preaching and British preaching, and the subsector is African American preaching, which is distinctive with its techniques of call and response mm -hmm. and musicality and uh, many others which has peculiar power and involves a very much stronger relationship between the preacher and the congregation than most other preaching, whether in North America or in the United Kingdom. Now, a little bit of that can be found in the UK, but it's derivative yeah. and it's fundamentally a phenomenon of the United States and fascinating it's been. I've enjoyed many a midweek revival in Waco <laughs> in small little corner whitewashed churches. On one occasion, Revival had only 13 people there. But it was good stuff yeah. and eminently worth recording. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. David Bebbington. He is professor of history at the University of Stirling in Scotland, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Thank you, David, for this fascinating conversation. You're most welcome. 
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.